Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Our first two shows of the new year will feature four artists included in Made in LA 2020, A Vision, the Hammer Museum's biennial. As you probably know, the exhibition has been installed at both the Hammer and the Huntington Library in nearby San Marino, but it's not yet on public view because of pandemic-caused closures. Its eventual opening date is dependent upon Los Angeles County guidance. As of the publishing of this episode, COVID rates in L.A. County are more than double the national average. Still, online and off-site projects that are a part of Made in L.A. by Larry Johnson and Khalil Joseph and by Lehia Lewis are on view now. Late last year, a small number of critics and journalists received a preview of the exhibition, so some of the word is out, and I decided that we'd air these conversations now to both support the artists in the show while we wait and to help remind everyone that the exhibition is coming, hopefully soon. My guests this week are Monica Maioli and Mario Ayala. More on Ayala later. First, Monica Maioli. She's primarily a painter whose work has explored subjects related to sex, sexuality, and power. She's been included in group exhibitions at museums such as SF MoMA and the Whitney Museum of American Art. Her work is in the collections of museums such as MoMA in New York and the Los Angeles County Museum. Monica Maioli, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take 6 allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take 6 will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska presents Intimate Actions, three new solo exhibitions centered on the theme of intimacy and how it enters into representations of the body, one's connection to space and surroundings, and our relationships. Maria Antelman, Soft Interface, Joey Fauerzo, Inside the Spider's Body, and Paul and Paji Sapoya, Drop Scene, are on view through April 24, 2021. Between two screens, virtual conversations with the artists and Bemis chief curator and director of programs Rachel Adams, will further explore intimacy and the works on view. Join Sapoya on January 13th and Antelman on January 27th at 12 p.m. Central Time. RSVP to receive Zoom details at bemiscenter.org. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view through February 7th, 2021 at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins' Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, 
books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Atkins's literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Monica Maioli, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Good to talk to you. What was Blue Boy Magazine, and how did you come to know of it? Blue Boy Magazine was a men's entertainment magazine published by Donald M. Binder in, I believe he began publishing in Florida in 1974. It was a kind of a, you might say, a version of Playboy, or that's how it's typically thought of. It involves all kinds of articles that pertain or possibly of general interest to gay men from the period. It had literary articles, it had fashion, it had political articles regarding various things, health art articles, things like that. So it was very complete in its focus. And it circulated, though, around a kind of, I would describe as a kind of romantic <laughs> photography of nude men. Maybe that's the best way I can describe it, because I, I don't want to call it soft core, because in so many ways, maybe it was that. I, I think that the publishers prefer not to refer to it that way, so I'm thinking of it in terms of maybe the quality of the photography. It has a kind of art photography quality to it, which is what my interest was in it, and how it was really quite different from other men's magazines of the period. It was also the first nationally distributed men's magazine for gay men, meaning that it, it was like in, in supermarkets and you could pick it up, you know, widely, and it wasn't something that was had a very small distribution. Where did I discover it? Of course, I knew about Blue Boy. I came out when I was very young. I came out at actually at the age of 15. But by the time I was in my later teens, I, I had a very good friend, my very close friend, Paul, who I painted uh, initially in my first probably more recognized work. And I really was exposed to it at probably at, it wasn't Circus, but there was another bookstore that was very popular that I frequented with my friend Paul. And that's where I discovered Blue Boy initially. But by the time in the early 90s, by this period, it really wasn't as interesting to me as, as the product it was in the 70s. And I sort of went in search of material to work with following an exhibition that I co-curated with the artist Judy Bamber of Tony Green's work. I went in search of, of gay male material at that point at Circus of Books in West Hollywood, and that's where I discovered these beautiful uh, magazines from the 1970s of Blue Boy, and I hadn't been exposed to that period. And that's really, I think, the heyday of Blue Boy Alex Sanchez was the first art director of Blue Boy, and he had such a beautiful qual a sense of design, and he took all the photographs, but he was working under like nine pseudonyms. So I ended up working with Alex Sanchez's photographs, and there was a quality of in his photography that was very experiential, and there was a naturalness to the to the men and that I found, that I found interesting. So that's really how I came upon, I was really struck by his work, by the graphic quality of Blue Boy in terms of his design layout, but also his photography, which was I found really moving. And so that's when I decided to make the series, having been very affected by his work. 
So before we turn to your paintings, I have to ask about the cover of the very first issue of Blue Boy, which featured a riff on Thomas Gainsborough's painting, Blue Boy, which is at the Huntington. I am guessing you started these paintings before you knew, A, they were going to be in in this iteration of Made in L.A. and A and B before you knew it would be at the Huntington. But now that <laughs> that's the way it's worked out, as anything about this confluence of events become interesting or maybe perhaps entertaining to you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, I felt so excited by the idea of Blue Boy, of the Blue Boy work being at the Huntington because of the fact, of course, that, you know, Donald Mbinder set out to, he named the magazine after the, the painting Blue Boy. And I just found that a beautiful synchronistic event, I guess you might say. I tend to like look for these little signs of things being right and in my work in a way. And I think that that to me was a beautiful lining up of, of events. I didn't initially, I guess I really wasn't aware that Blue Boy initially was named after Blue Boy, you know, how the, how the sort of the confluence of events took place within the publishing of the magazine. But I really felt that Donald M. Binder, who's since passed away, would have appreciated the fact that the magazine was really highlighted in the Huntington exhibition. I made a point of really, it's like a love letter really to the magazine and the publisher and to Alex Sanchez, who I wanted to highlight. So for me, it was, it was a way for me to acknowledge the importance of what for me is always a catalyst, which are photographs in my work. And so it was a way for me to acknowledge that profound relationship that I have to the photograph. Before we talk about the paintings, let me tie up one last loose end on Blue Boy. The magazine was not initially a Los Angeles-based magazine, so there's there was no local inevitability to the reference to the Gainsborough painting at the Huntington. Uh, the magazine started in Washington, uh, and eventually, about a decade almost after its founding, only then moved moved to Los Angeles. I believe it started in Florida. It went to Florida from D.C. It went to Florida from Washington. I, and, I, and I must say, looking at your work and reading about the magazine has left me very curious about where the magazine's archives are. <laughs> there are a couple of things about these new paintings that of yours that jump out at me. One is is how they're made, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the first thing about these paintings that's really striking is the tone, the, the, the kind of washed-out color, sun-soaked color from which or with which you've, you've made these paintings. And I wonder how that, I don't know, it's less a palette and more of a tone, and I wonder if that is intended to evoke nostalgia, if it's a product of the medium you were using or something else entirely. I think it really is. It's interesting that you put it that way. It is both things because, of course, the work could be more intensely colored depending on how many layers I put on. And with that would change the, the depth of the color and the intensity of the color. So I intentionally work with that, I guess, as you said, a kind of faded out quality. Because, of course, this is, to me, this is really about AIDS, you know, and it's about a lot of things, but fundamentally it's about the period before AIDS occurred. And so I'm trying to evoke a feeling of past of something exactly as you described it, 
the nostalgia of, I guess you might say, innocence, the nostalgia of pleasure without, without a, a kind of foreshadowing of AIDS, but almost something that occurred before that, almost a dawn, really, of the day. But also what happens with that technique is that when you, it's almost like a fresco in, in the sense that it feels almost like a kind of plaster-like or chalkiness, which I find engaging and interesting, beautiful. So it's really in the sort of rubbing, you really can't define the palette so easily. I tend to mix the color rather accurately, but when you find that when you rub it, it, it actually, the transferring process really changes the color. So that becomes a very engaging aspect of arriving at a color, for instance, which is very different because you can't really mix a color to match in this case. We should quickly describe that process. It's called a white line woodcut or, or watercolor woodcut transfer is another phrase you've used. The white line woodcut was developed at the turn of the century in uh, Provincetown by mostly women printmakers who were influenced by Japanese woodblock printmaking, which is a water-based printmaking process, which is very involved. It's quite a craft, as I think we all know. So the printmakers in Provincetown found the technique of, of Japanese woodblock quite difficult. It involves, you know, basically carving individual blocks for each color, uh, registering those blocks, etc., registering the paper to each block, etc. It's very involved. What the printmakers in Provincetown did was they were influenced by Japanese woodblock, but what they did was something more direct. They etched or they carved a line, a white line, out of one block. And then, as you would at painting, they just painted it really incrementally on the block and transferred the block. So basically rubbing, they attached the paper to the block itself with something like tacks on one side and just went back and forth rubbing the, the back of the paper with a wooden spoon. And so because it's watercolor, it's a, it is a watercolor painting, but it's a very slow process of making, and typically they're very small. So for, for these works, they're very large. And so the very time-intensive quality of painting them is an aspect to the work. It's, it's a very plodding kind of process of making that almost makes you into a kind of human Xerox machine where you're moving back and forth in rows to make the first layer, stretching the paper all the way through because you want to try to avoid, you're trying to keep that white line crisp. It's a fascinating technique, and I think we'll be talking a little bit more as we go along about how you've made art in a number of ways that refer to printmaking techniques over the years. But in terms of this specific technique, what about it fit the images you wanted to play with? That's always a very curious question. I, I honestly can't tell you that I, I, I oddly had decided to work with, I wanted to try to figure out if I could work with Japanese woodblock printmaking. I ended up going to Japan and, and, and for a conference and trying to figure out if I had what it took to do something like that. Of course, I realized, as the printmakers did in Provincetown, that it was so complex, and I really just wanted one image from, I, I, I want the singular image. It's very important to me to work, even with printmaking processes, I want to make a unique object. So for me, it's it's an investment that in the end results in one object, not a proliferation of, of things. So I had set out to go to, I went to Japan, as I said, I, I studied it. I studied it enough to know that I it was impossible. And 
I had actually had in mind to do a different image. So I had already sort of figured out the forms, oddly, that I was engaged with in terms of how I could work. And then I discovered the Blue Boy magazine uh, of the 70s. And then I just combined sort of through trial and error. I realized that I wanted to work with the subject of, of the men at the same time, but I wanted to work with this form in some way. And that's what brought these two things together. And it was in the white line woodcut that has a kind of ghostly quality that I was really engaged with the, the combination of the form and the content together or the subject together. What I discovered in the quality of value, meaning the lightness or the darkness of the image, is that in order to kind of meld the white line to make it a kind of negative, I think of these as a kind of like photographic negatives when I'm working with them. To create that quality of interchangeability really between the line, the white line, and the value sometimes, it's important to me to keep it somewhat within a certain value range. Otherwise, the white line really separates from the form or the color. So I like that interchangeability between the white line and the and aspects of the painting. So I mentioned a moment ago that you have often brought printing techniques and materials into into paintings, into unique objects. Some of your black mirror works, for example, were made with lithographic ink. And of course, this new work we're talking about. So I wonder to what extent that interest is, is biographical, descending from your father, who, who who is a lithographer, or if there is something more to why you keep returning to riffing on printmaking techniques. Well, you know, I think that, I think both, to be honest with you. I think there is something for me in, I didn't know my father, I never met my father, and he had a lithographic press, he's, he's passed away, but he had a press in Italy. And I think that for me, there is this way of somehow knowing or, or developing a relationship with him through the form mm -hmm. of printmaking. Working with printmakers, I worked at Cirrus, uh, with Jean Milan and his staff there and his team to make the Black Mirror work. And that was meaningful for me. And I, oh, of course, I worked with, with Ed Hamilton, who was, that was a wonderful experience because it's such an intimate experience with Ed in Venice. And that was my first encounter with the lithograph. And he's just a master printmaker. And so that was an extraordinary experience that I, I made a, I think it was a seven plate litho with, with Ed. And so I actually did the blueprint for the, we created the blueprint in many ways for the Black Mirror work together. And then I had to go to Cirrus because Ed was, uh, was too busy with work at that time. And we just couldn't get, we couldn't get enough time together to actually execute the work. But those are all also unique objects. So you can imagine how extraordinary that was. It was the, each of them kind of cost me, I think about $2,000 each just to produce one, one lit. Yeah, one, one lithograph, because I was really experimenting with color and things like that. And then I would do a sort of like the framing. I was thinking of it as kind of like framing the images with gouache and acrylic inks by hand. So that's how that worked out. So I was thinking of using the lithograph at that time as the lithographic materials. So I have done whole prints, but I've also done works that are unique objects that work with the process of printmaking. And I'm, my interest, as it is also, you might say, with painting in general, is the a kind of tension that exists between acting against the medium in some way 
I would say that my interest in making unique objects with the printmaking process is to is to a kind of contradiction or a a kind of alteration of the form or the or the meaning of the form, which is to change its accumulative quality. My interest in painting in so many ways and working with the documentary image is similar in that sense in that I'm working with an impossible situation by trying to make a documentary image with using painting, for instance, because it's a fiction. So there's a kind of quality, I think, of the... There's a kind of tension, I think, that it interests me in the impossible that I encounter with in various forms that I'm working with. I'm also really interested in historical materials and how that and how they hold a kind of emotive potential and thinking about ways that I can make that unique for me. So printmaking is very much a historical form that interests me based on its historical significance and value. Printmaking, of course, quite often requires touch, human touch. And your work, not just because of how it's made, but because of what, of what it's showing us, very often recalls touch, both in these new works, which are spectacularly tactility-tempting, if you will, and if you'll excuse the alliteration, or in your Black Mirror paintings, which, when I first saw them, reminded me of the way... We use our hands to find our way in the dark to the way uh, your rubberman paintings of the mid mid aughts recall the tender, I think you could call it, way that watercolor brushes act on paper. Are, are you interested in, in your forms of painting, if you will, being an analog for touch? Yes, I think that's a very accurate way of putting it. And you're, that was so interesting to me that you described the black mirrors as feeling your way in the dark because I felt that way exactly with those images. And in fact, it's used that term in, in describing them, the way in which you're sort of looking for your coat in, in, a, <laughs> in the dark and feeling your way. And I think that because my process, really regardless of what I'm making, is about searching for something. I work with a photograph, but I don't, it doesn't really exist for me as as an end to itself, it's really the beginning of something and a beginning of a relationship to the image. And so touch is involved in that. That feeling of searching is, for me, very tactile, and I'm very interested in, in the ways in which the haptic enters into painting, of course, like so many, or just the two-dimensional or the 2D kind of work that I'm interested in. Also, in ways, how that touch can be distanced is interesting to me. How there can be a frustration of touch or a frustration of access is always important for me. So it's not necessarily the gesture that is visible, but the thing the thing that isn't completely visible or is somewhat obscured that is interesting to me, if that makes sense. That's where the process of printmaking comes in, in certain ways, is just the, with this particular body of work, especially because I think that's, highlighted is the sense that, of course, you're looking at material that would have been handled. You know, I don't want to say pornography. These are sexual images that were about a kind of handling, whether it's handling your own body or handling the magazine, and then handling your body. You know, this kind of idea of, of touch is definitely what is about the images or what generates the interest in the image in, in so many ways, and how the eyes or the vision becomes a form of, of touch in the work. The sense of the transfer is very activating in that sense in that it you feel the paper absorbs the the wood right so you feel that the wood grain is in, impressed into the painting or into the image and so there's this quality of 
how the impression of of the materials themselves against each other make the the final image in that work. So there is that tactile quality that I think really comes through very strongly in this in this work. I'm not sure about the black mirrors because I was doing something there that uh, was both brushing the paint on and wiping it off with a rag, and so there was a kind of burnished quality to a lot of that work. We'll, we'll talk about non-Blue Boy's work as, 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 as we go along, but I want to return to the Blue Boys while we're talking about touch. Certainly we are, we, we the viewer are meant to notice the men who are handsome but also accessible. But I find that one of the things that really interests me about these paintings is the backgrounds. And so one of the works in which this sense of touch is most evident in, in the background is a work called Blue Boy Pedro. It's a little over three feet wide, a couple feet high. So you described how, how, how using a wooden spoon helps transfer color onto the paper. And that sense of repeated touching of spoon to paper, we, we really see in the background here. But the background, which is kind of a, a greenish wall with vertical stripes on it, also screams art history to me, and particularly uh, is both um, an acknowledgement of and a rejoinder to Barnett Newman. And I wonder if that was any of the appeal of working with this picture for you. Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought of Barnett Newman in that work. But yes, I mean, I think that for sure, and I think if you think, when you look at those images, they're very much about a classical classicism in many ways, a kind of, I was interested in thinking about statuaries specifically. And Pedro was a particularly classical, I think, palette. And I was interested in that kind of, I think with Pedro, there's a quality of the paring down in so many ways of the palette of, of those, of that particular image. Fresco-like even. Fresco-like, yes. And then the, and then the kind of hot subject is interesting to me with Pedro in particular the blue jeans, et cetera. So there's a kind of modern quality to it. At the same time, you know, that particular image from Alex Sanchez was particularly devoid of color. So all of that in so many ways is invented, although I did follow the quality of how pared down in color it was. But there's a lot of, there's some what a significant amount of invented color in all of them to a certain degree, but with that one in particular, that's really just a white wall in the in the photograph. So it's a very pared down image where Pedro is very low in the frame, and the kind of prone and horizontal quality of his body there is emphasized obviously by the composition. But I was interested in the ways in which the background would act as a kind of classical framework for the body in this instance, and also just even the blue jeans and the quality of intimacy of that image, because it really is so. He's Pedro is the only larger one where the man is life-size. The other images, the men are larger than life. So I wanted really to convey the quality of just lying next to someone and what that feels like. There's uh, one of the other works in the series, Blue Boy Ted, is one that also screams art history to me. The, the, the pose of the man in Blue Boy Ted references a lot of the French nude tradition and maybe feels most like Paul Gauguin's 1892 Spirit, Spirit of the Dead watching at the Albright. 
Well, maybe if it's interesting, then that wasn't part of the appeal of the image. But I, I, I wonder if you looked for art history in the photographs you chose. <laughs> I would say I'm always very keyed into art history. I'm I'm somebody who who gets a lot of what inspiration you might say, or certainly I'm steeped in it. And so I don't have I'm not I don't have an adverse feeling to art history at all. I use it. I'm inspired by it. It's all over in terms of my studio. I have you know various books that I have around. But and I was thinking specifically about Balthus in 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 a certain way and some of his work uh, of a certain period with with the girls and how the fresco like quality of that was inspiring to me and of course the simplicity of the figures. But mostly I was interested in a kind of Greek statuary, Roman statuary, and thinking of these men as a kind of monument of some kind. But yes, I think that I'm very inspired by art history. I wouldn't have said, interestingly, I guess the reason I said interesting with Ted was just because I think of the pose of Ted on his, you know, on all fours as being not so much about a kind of art historical reference, but more of a kind of, I would say, a pornographic reference. Because I find the image to be much more explicit than some of the other images in the, in the exhibition in that particular grouping. Another thing about the backgrounds in these pictures that jumped out at me, and I guess also because I knew you were working on these paintings in 2019 as Anna Katz was figuring up her pattern and decoration show, which opened at MOCA at the end of the year last year, the end of the year in 2019, I should say, is that so many of the backgrounds in these paintings could be torn from pattern and decoration painting, and whether that was a connection you made. And that mattered to you? I don't know um, that it, it was specifically. I was more interested in, I, I mean, I've worked with pattern in the past in my work. And there are paintings that I did earlier where there's pattern, quite deal a lot of pattern to sort of set off the figure. I'm interested in the ways in which the figure becomes a kind of resting place for the eye when you have pattern around it. And it kind of forces the eye to look at the body. But I think a lot of my interest really had to do with Japanese woodblock and how pattern is used in Japanese woodblock making. As again, as a foil for the for the body, as a way in which to emphasize the accessibility of flesh. So I would say that more than. And I was very interested in the patterns because I think they really evoke the time that they were made. So it's a kind of way to kind of ground the men in a period, uh, the sheets, for instance, on the Roger painting that were kind of this epic kaleidoscopic experience. I think it's a way to communicate the time and locate the men in a period. And I kind of, there was like a floral quality to the one that Ted is hunched over. And that delicacy is interesting to me. I'm really interested in ways in which I'm feminizing the men or the men were presented in an in feminine ways. I mean, I've always been interested in, in a kind of the feminizing of, of the male body or the kind of ways in which one might masculinize the female body. So that's always been an aspect for me. So these men, for me, are very receptive bodies. And the pattern has a part of that. It takes part in that kind of way in which we see the men differently, not in a conventional masculine way, but rather conveys a different sensibility. We've talked a couple times about the light in these paintings and how it recalls nostalgia. And we talked a little bit about your Black Mirror works, how the light in them is totally different. And then there's the Rear Rubberman paintings in which the light is kind of ethereal and almost spirit-like. 
All of which is to say is that the light in each of these different kinds of works is enormously distinctive. Is it something you're trying to bring into them, or is it 80% a function of the medium you're choosing to use for those bodies of work? No, again, I think it's interesting that you're locating the key aspects of my work. You know, light is a really critical part of my response to to my work and and definitely has a lot to do with what draws me to a medium, what draws me to the, I don't know how to put this exactly, I I want to say that there's something metaphysical about about it, that for me light is an aspect of that, the metaphysicality of painting. And I think that when I'm working specifically like with watercolor, for instance, I'm very interested in the light that emanates really from the paper through the color, you know, through the basically the film or the veil of color that's applied to the paper. But it's really that quality of light that really comes from the paper specifically that interests me. Of course, with the Black Mirror work, it's very distinctively about the darkness and how within the darkness you almost feel that there's a light source within the darkness, if that makes sense, that the darkness becomes a light source is of interest to me. So light has always been a fundamental part of my work. Almost capturing light has been something that's been incredibly important for me in the process of making the work and often dictates where the work ends, how it ends, if that makes sense. How I resolve it has a lot to do with the quality of light that's there or not there, that that there has to exist a quality of light in the work for me to be satisfied with it. So in a sense, I pursue my ends through light. There's a, a great example of the way you highlight light, if you will, in Blue Boy Ryan, which I think is one of the earliest works in this series, right? It is. It was the first large work I did. It It was quite, and it has a different quality because of it. It feels more like fingerprints almost on the surface. They're so small. The rings of color are so small. They were about put down at about an inch across or like inch by inch by inch. So that one has a different feeling of a kind of dappled quality than the others. It's a super Pierre Bernardian picture. There, There's a suggestion of a window in the upper right-hand corner, and the way the figure, presumably Ryan, is leaning forward and the way triangles, the way the body is and the light is formed by triangles very much recall, recalls Bernard's uh, The Toilette from 1932, I think. And I guess I'm curious if if not only, you know, if, if engaging with Bernard was part of the appeal of choosing that photograph. Oh, that's so interesting. I wouldn't have said Bonar exactly, but I know what you mean. I feel like these works are have a feeling more of a kind of Matisse or like I think of the... Well, um, 30, 32 Bernard is pretty Matisse, right? I mean, that's that's the absolute height of, maybe not the absolute, but darn near the absolute height of Bernard looking at Matisse and his very good friend. I love Bonar. I mean, and, and I know what you're talking about. I think that feeling of of color that's scumbled on and layered and that quality, of course, of Bernard is always just exquisite. And, of course, Bernard had been a printmaker, and he transferred a lot of what he, he did in making prints early in his career to his paintings all along. I was just really interested in the idea of of, the, of a kind of, I don't want to say it's a bather, but I think in Ryan particularly, the history of bathers kind of came through for me in that work. And just, you know, really, so much of what 
I make why I make a painting has to do with the photograph, and that's a very hard thing, of course, for me to talk to you about because you're not seeing the photograph. But the photographs for me are the uh, are the instigating. It's an instigating feature for me, and why I would choose Ryan as opposed to other men. I mean, there are, you know I've looked through thousands of photographs of men, and ultimately it comes down to I couldn't even tell you exactly why certain men become the subjects for me and others don't. It really is uh, probably a kind of form of attraction that is hard to describe. But really in that photograph, it was it's the photograph that, that I'm responding to. It's not necessarily a kind of art historical, clear art historical focus that I'm necessarily involved with, although Alex Sanchez clearly might have been. It's probably a combination of things, but for me, it's really the intensity something of something that happens when I look at the photograph that makes me fixate on it and want to make a painting with it. So it's really not, it's not because I'm interested in the art historical context directly. That makes it very dangerous for me to ask you about art history and rubber men, but I'm probably going to do it anyway. <laughs> for me, the rubber men pictures, which foreground... BDSM play, everything from bummification and bondage and sensory deprivation to plenty more. I find within that series a whole lot of references to Catholic art, European Catholic painting. So, for example, there's a man leaning against or bound to a tree that inevitably, the posture of his body, at least for me, inevitably recalls St. Sebastian's going back through hundreds of years. Is there a level at which the Rubberman series was an engagement with Catholic painting? Well, I mean, I think all of my work has a kind of Catholicism about it, which if you, you know, very clearly, in fact, my very early work with that I did of Paul's life, my friend Paul, that, that work was, I considered that work to be religious. I thought of those as religious paintings which I think also has to do with the time and the fact that I was memorializing him, you know, in a sense that around the period where I was kind of convinced of that. Thank, thankfully, he has survived HIV, uh, survived AIDS. It never, it never went to that point with Paul, but, you know, at that point he had HIV, and I was, since men were dying so rapidly at that point, I thought that he would be not survive. And so I was sort of memorializing him in those paintings, and I was, and, and from his own life experience, and I was thinking of those as religious paintings. So my work has always kind of dealt with a kind of Catholicism, but I really do believe that, you know, in BDSM, there is a huge amount of religious symbolism that's going on, as we all, I think, know, if any, if anyone is aware of, you know, the, the props and the tropes in uh, BDSM, there's a great deal of a kind of religious Ritualistic, yes, ritualistic kind of activity, but also there's a reference to certain aspects of suffering and pain, and, and the crucifixion is really an odd thing in itself, really, when you think about how the Catholic Church has sort of designated that as the symbol of Christianity rather than necessarily, I mean, you rarely see images of Christ in heaven, for instance. It's really about the idea of the body as as a form of a passageway, I guess, I suppose, of course, is sacrificial aspects. I, I should jump in and note that your rubber man bound number three from 2007 is two-thirds of a crucifixion. <laughs> yes, it is two-thirds of a crucifixion. He's on his knees at that point. 
But yeah, I mean, that's how that work does operate. I mean, certainly, and I think that there's this idea of the burden of the body that comes through in the Rubberman work that I think is really very much about an idea of BDSM. And I don't want to say that there's a kind of abject aspect that's always functioning there, but I think there is, in a sense, that sense in which we are, I don't want to say necessarily victims of our desires, but the drives of the body necessitate a kind of surrender, you might say. And so there's there are those aspects that I think tie into Catholicism, that one has to reckon with the flesh as a force and uh, maybe supplicate oneself to that dimension. I guess I should add that I, I think that the Catholicism and paintings of martyrdom go way back in your work. So a work like Untitled Orgy from 1990, which is a pretty small work, I think it's about a foot or a foot and a half square, recalls a St. Lawrence being lowered onto the the thing that sits above the fire on which he is burned alive, or a Bartholomew being flayed. Yeah, in the Maria or Rembrandt kind of way. Well, that, that, that particular period of my work was heavily involved with art history, and as you can see, and so I was really responding to various sort of my, I was very besotted at that point, you know, and so it was it was a reference, a kind of mashup between gay porn at the, during the period, my friends' stories, and art history. I wanted to close by asking about one work from earlier in your career that is, is pretty darn abstract. It's a small panel painting called Untitled Chest. And we've we talked a little bit about the abstractions behind the male nudes in the blue boys paintings, pictures, and how I'm such an art history nerd that I get lost in them. <laughs> but it, it, it seems to me that this little 1991 painting is one of your earliest addresses of um, making something representational into something abstract. And I wonder how that painting worked for you and how, if it led to anything that you carried forward. I think I followed that chest painting with a, the back of my neck, which also has an element somewhat of a bit more abstract than the other images that I did of the fragments, the body fragments, self-portraits. Let me jump in just for a second to describe that neck painting. The neck painting is even smaller than the chest painting, and it is not to the viewer without the title of the painting, obviously a neck. It could almost be, it, it could absolutely be read as a torso, it could be read as maybe two armpits it it doesn't it's not immediate you know I'm, I'm i'm not i'm just trying to mostly point out how it's not immediately identifiable as the nape of a neck or the front of a neck yes i think that's true there's a kind of more animal quality to that one i think in certain ways and you're right there is that element of the torso it, it has a more surrealistic quality in, in certain ways than than some of the others but i think that when you talk about chest that as well has that but i was I was interested in ways in which when one is making love, you just really see fragments and that the fragment becomes very, the body becomes very abstract in those, in those moments of intimacy, you know, with, with another person. How chest carried through with my other work? That's a really curious question that I haven't, I don't know that I've even really considered, but I think it's, I think it's a beautiful question. I just haven't really thought about it. And I don't know that I, I'm trying to think through what I made after that. I don't know that 
I ever made anything, as you said, that had both the figurative element or the figural element and abstraction so closely intertwined because everything from that period, I believe, on has been not that. You know, I think I've separated. I think with the Black Mirror work was the first time I did anything that felt like I was trying to work with abstraction, but ultimately was about a kind of representation of the mirrors in my bedroom. But many of those shapes in your presentation of them are abstractions. They are, but they are based in a room, in, in the room that the photographs were taken in. And basically, the, a room of you know, wall-sized black mirror is basically like a room of black monochromes. So the monochrome kind of continues. And so I was working with drawings from the mirrors and abstracting those even more so. But the room itself is a kind of abstraction. I'm trying to think of anything that I did that felt like it was more of a figural and, and abstract combination. And I don't think I ever did anything quite that as I did in that one painting that you're talking about. I think it's interesting that you're bringing it up. Lots of passages in Blue Boys, though, might be related. In Blue Boy Carl, the background is is serial. You know, is serial, S-E-R-I-A-L, in a way that recalls a, a, a wink at minimalism. But the, the colors of that background tile wall, I'm guessing it's a tile wall, continue into Carl's chest and torso in ways that kind of, at least for me, recall that that earlier in-between painting. By the way, everyone tends to think of those as tiles. Those are actually like wooden shingles. But I guess when I think of the chest painting, I do think that it was about a kind of making abstract or alien the body. I understand what you're saying about Carl. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's that, yeah, the interchangeability of the background or the the pattern in the background and the body itself, which is which is what's of interest to me, uh creating these cross references. Certainly, and I didn't want to separate Carl really from the background or the wall. But I think that the figural the figural elements there still maintain their figuration very strongly. So yeah, I think that maybe with some of the black mirror work, the portraits you'll see a kind of melding that enters more into abstraction or certainly touches that a little bit more where you really just see the edge. I have an interest in edges and the ways in which the point of contact between the outside and the inside or the outer world and the in inner world connect. And the edge for me is often an important element in the work. They all deal with a kind of quality of line or the edge between one thing and the other. And that's the case really with the rubber man with, with the black mirrors, with Blue Boy, all of it, that I'm interested in that boundary between the inner and outer and that porousness that exists. Excellent. Monica Maioli, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Join Getty President Jim Cuno as he talks with artists, writers, curators, and scholars on the Art and Ideas podcast. Learn about black mid-century architect Paul R. Williams from the perspective of his granddaughter, Karen Hudson, and curator Laron Brooks. Hear the story of Japanese-American photographers in pre-World War II L.A. with curator Virginia Heckert. Explore the lives of Pliny the Elder and Younger, plans for rebuilding Beirut after the recent explosions, and an alternative history of surrealism found in Dora Maar's Lost Address Book. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app 
or visit getty.edu slash podcasts. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has just opened the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for modern and contemporary art, capping the completion of a decade-long project to complete the Susan and Fayez as Seraphim campus. Visit mfah.org slash getmodern. Welcome back. Next up, Mario Ayala, a painter who mixes Latinx material culture and the Western painting tradition in ways that foreground Chicano culture. He's had solo exhibitions at galleries in the United States, Sweden, and Belgium. Made in L.A. is his first museum group show. Mario Ayala, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, how are you? Let's start with the installation of your work in the Huntington Library's half of Made in L.A., the gallery in which your work sits includes a broad vitrine full of printed material. What is in that vitrine? Why is it important to your work? And indeed, why did you want people to see your work in the context of what's in that vitrine? Well, first, the sort of publications are inside the vitrine. It's kind of like my modest collection of these sort of like early Chicano-like publications, uh, one being Teen Angels, Mi Vida Loca, and a few other like sort of smaller sort of smaller publications that stemmed from this like 90s magazines and you know David Holland who went by the name Teen Angels is the one sort of responsible for I think in some way getting some sort of just like I think like object as like a making it into like a, a type of like space for people to submit like artwork and poetry and like writing have it viewed by like the masses and so the paintings and the hammer are sort of like loosely referencing like these magazine covers and so I wanted to sort of yeah I guess I wanted to sort of just have like a presentation of you know some of this like material that is scarcely seen. I think one of the hammer paintings that most directly references those zines is a painting called Earth Angel. What do we see in Earth Angel, and what is its relationship to uh, that visual culture material, to, to, to the zines? Well, you know, Teen Angels being kind of like the more like prominently like known magazine, out of the, um, the few different ones that I have there, Teen Angels sort of had this kind of ongoing like theme of um, sort of like lexicons, one being the sort of like framework of like the inner image, which was typically like figurative. I think there were sort of responses to some narrative, like current narratives happening at the time. And so, you know, David Holland passed away not too long ago and Teen Angels hasn't really produced like a magazine in quite some time. And so I was sort of trying to like, in my own like narrative space, imagine what like a new like issue would look like. And sort of like keeping some of those familiar like tropes with the filigree sort of border that's sort of framing the inner like figure and sort of just, yeah, I guess sort of just like changing small things to, I guess, sort of like create like, yeah, I guess like a more like present version of what maybe that cover could look like. That's that's interesting. A lot of the paintings in in Made in L.A., feature a very specific interiority, if you will, that you're that you're mentioning. So not only is there kind of a central image that is often framed in the way that you just described, but you're often 
placing those interior elements very much in kind of like windows within the paintings, within kind of gridded squares within the paintings. I think we'll talk a little more about Angel's Fruits in a minute, but that's a good example of how there are elements that are boxed off within the rectangle. It's like kind of difficult for me to like have, frankly, a very like direct sort of intentions of like a painting that's so like direct narratively. So I think like the windows in some way... Yeah, I think like the windows in some way or like, you know, how some images are framed rather than others, I think like allows for that to be a bit more like free form and open for interpretation. It's a very Larry Pittman element of your paintings. <laughs> yeah. Lots of specific things going on in lots of different parts of the canvas, all competing for the viewer's attention, all of it very colorful, all of it very loud and insistent. It's very, you know, it's it's very particular to kind of L.A. painting of the last 20 years. Your paintings for a number of years now are full of references to California car culture. Artists in California, especially in the Southland, have migrated elements from car culture into art since the 1950s and 60s, at least, L.A. light and space. Your first engagement with car culture first came, I think, through your father, what kinds of vehicles did he have, and what do you remember about them? I think my dad, growing up in in Inglewood in the 80s, being like a teenager, he was always low riding and had Monte Carlos. But when I was like born, and my sister soon after, you know, he got rid of most of his cars and was a truck driver, and still is to this day. But growing up with my pops, like he always sort of brought me around work and things that were uh you know always like sort of centered around car or motorcycle and so my dad was always like riding motorcycles growing up and just overall just kind of an enthusiast of it of it all you know so at some point you must have fallen in love with how those cars and those bikes were airbrushed where 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 the paint and painting on them was airbrushed do you remember when when you noticed that and came to came to value it and enjoy it? It's funny because like you know maybe it's part of like growing up or what have you or like you sort of just want to hang out with your friends and my dad was always like no you got to come with me to work and come to the yard which is where he used to park his Peterbilts and all his like project cars you know it didn't really grow grow onto me as something that was like really interesting at first. But my dad was always like, I think, trying. He always knew that I was painting and was like interested in like drawing. And so he would like introduce me as friends that were like pinstripers or like just like, you know, body man. Like it's kind of in relation, I guess, to the exhibition at the Hammer because it wasn't until I was living in San Francisco going to school up there where I had this sort of like job delivering this like uh, free arts quarterly magazine called SFAQ. And I started finding these magazines called Las Buenas Notas and like it was published in San Jose and it was like a more of like a religious publication but had these like drawings on the cover that sort of remember like reminded me of like my dad's drawings and my dad like sort of well he used to like give me these drawings when he would come home like late at night after like working like a late shift and they were just ballpoint drawings like on back of his like receipts and like it's sort of 
reminded me of I think like what you're saying like the memory of like me being around like my father and like not understanding like that I was like sort of being introduced to this like type of sculpture type of painting early on I think that's like when it started entering like the work more like consciously and if I understand the chronology correctly you didn't start using an airbrush in your painting until well after art school which is around the same time that, like, I was also sort of, like, you know, doing the sort of, like, paper route, if you will. And so, like, I started airbrushing, like, maybe the last year of school, but, you know, was interested in the machine and, like, and how I've seen it, but I wasn't really, like, directly, I think, using it for any significant, like, purpose, you know? Yeah, it wasn't really until, I think, like, this sort of transition moving back to L.A. where I had a different relationship with it. What do you like about the way a painting on canvas made with an airbrush looks as opposed to how it would look if you used a brush or something else? You know, I think like that's also like based on like a before even painting, just like the surface quality too. Just because, you know, making airbrush paintings in the past where the treatment to like the, the surface of a canvas is a bit more rough, it has a completely different like, I think, look to it. So, I've been working on these surfaces that are like hyper smooth, almost as like smooth as like, you know, a type of like metal. I guess trying to achieve some type of similar surface. I think that sort of change and just even the surface treatment, like, yeah, illuminates the, the paint, you know, in a way that I think is a lot different than using a brush. You know, one of the interesting things about that to me is that you, in your paintings, you tend to slam everything you can up against the picture plane every everything in in an ayala is pushing it as far into the viewer's space as it possibly could be <laughs> so they're crammed full of stuff and they're flying at us and so it sounds i mean the way you just describe it it sounds like the the different way airbrushed paint sits on a canvas is almost what allows you to get away with that volume yeah maybe maybe like in a way i also think that there's like you know i mean like brushing i guess like painting with like a brush you know there's like moments of space that you can achieve like with like airbrushing that isn't maybe necessarily well, yeah necessarily possible like with a with a brush you know yeah well it's a big difference it definitely makes sense i mean i think like the biggest one is just how paint is distributed you know because it's being automized so that also allows you to like also you know make different kinds of marks depending on where you're physically in space you know whether you're closer or further away from a surface you're also dealing with like air pressure so i think there's some technicalities to it that i guess you know aren't necessarily centered around just you directly but this machine so Another characteristic of your paintings, both now and in recent years, or both in, in Made in L.A. and in recent years, is the way you play with grids and build grids into the paintings. In Aqueduct Angel, which is up at the hammer, there are two major grid systems in the painting. One is in the middle. There's, there's a figure framed behind it. It's a chain link grid behind metal bars. And then just above that central section of the painting there is the LAPD building, which is covered with gridded windows, of course. I'll have an image of that on manpodcast.com. But even going back 
a year or three, a painting like Mending Acquaintances from 2018 or Reintegration from 2019, both have fence-like grids behind which, air quotes, the rest of the painting sits. Painters have loved playing with the grid for a while. You're clearly putting a, a, an LA, a physical L.A. spin on it. What do those grids allow you to do? Why do you like playing with them? I mean, I guess like for the one Aqueduct Angel, you know, I think it serves that grid in particular. Like it was sort of like, I guess, serving as like an idea to expand on like the, the sort of like borders within like the Teen Angels magazines that I was referencing in uh, the Earth Angel painting more directly. But I mean, the I guess like depending on what the object is that is like serving as the grid, I think they sort of like pertain to some type of like familiarness with like myself growing up here and spaces and how those are sort of like divided. But I think, you know, they also, you know, I'm interested in how they even sort of read like to you. Well, they, they, they remind me that I have never seen more chain link fences in a city or metropolis than, than you see in LA. Quite often within the vast, vast, vast suburban metropolis of LA, there are empty pieces of land, and those empty pieces of land are always separated from what surrounds them by chain link fences. I'm, I'm sure there's some legal reason that there are chain link fences all over LA, but they also exist as like I don't know how to I don't know how to phrase this in in in, in a way that makes sense to somebody who lives in Fargo and who, who doesn't spend a lot of time in LA. But if you spend a lot of time in LA, you just always assume those fences are put up by white people. They, they seem to be keeping people out of spaces that seem controlled by corporate America or you know or an equestrian club or something like that. <laughs> Or, or, or from nature, or separating people from nature. You know, like the L.A. River is lined with uh, chain link fence. Not that the L.A. River is nature anymore, but it once was. For me, like, growing up here, like, those fences, you know, much to what you're saying, like, you know, there is, like, a lot of truth in this sort of, like, segregation of space, even, you know? And I think that, you know, I spent a lot of time in my youth trying to move past those fences, whether they're, like, literal ones or, you know, or not, but... Those sort of spaces that were typically like fenced off always seemed like more intriguing to me. I don't know if that's just out of like, <laughs> you know, uh, just some curiosity as like a young kid. But I think that's also like a, a memory that is not just singular. You know, I think I'm, I, have, I know, I mean, there's a lot of people that have those similar feelings with that just object, you know. There's a stretch of the L.A. River that runs between uh, Tropico, uh, Edward Weston's old neighborhood, in the southern tip of Glendale, where Esten, where Weston actually made a lot of photographs outdoors, and the other side of the L.A. River, just opposite Tropico, which is you know kind of kind of Los Feliz ish, and that space is in Weston pictures from from the 30s. You can you can see it, and then when you go out in it today, it's all fenced off for no evident reason. It's just keeping people out of the L.A. River Channel. But what's grown up beyond in the L.A. River Channel? are these kind of islands of vegetation, trees and shrubbery that have somehow found a foothold in the concrete channel. And they're all fenced off, but because it's like this only greenery that's left in that part of L.A., there's like a compulsion to find a way through the fence into, air quotes, the river, the channel. So, so yes, I relate to that big time. <laughs> I mean, you know, people actually fish there. Yes, yes. And they fish like practically from the freeway. I-5 I goes right by there. 
people like park at the side of I-5 and either fish over through the fence or jump the fence and fish there because that greenery, that shrubbery provides, oh, here I'm about to say scientific things when I really shouldn't, but, you know, provides some oxygen in the water or whatever that allows fish to, or encourages fish to congregate there. My my science knowledge is embarrassing me mightily. Um, <laughs> lack of knowledge. You know, I think the the curiosity in those spaces as well just kind of came from also just like a maybe an absence of space as well, you know? And since those, and I guess what I'm saying is those places almost seemed kind of safe in some, to some regards. Typically seemed like out of the normal, you know? And, um, and that could just as easy as easily as be as just hanging out with your friends. Yeah, I don't know. Those spaces are like the LA River itself. Just quite interesting how they've been sort of like used in these other ways as well, you know? There are lots of, things about LA's geography and terrain that are unsettling and that's it's not just that it's been concreted over and blocked off by chain link fences and the like it's it's just so far from the natural it's disorienting well speaking of dogs you have both made paintings full of dogs for many years for several years now you've made at least one sculpture of a dog dodger dog from last year which for people who know LA that's a that's also a hot dog joke of a baseball stadium food joke (laughs) there are paintings in which you not only have dogs and give humans dog-like visages but you include other little sly references to dogs uh reintegration which we talked about a moment ago has a beware of dog sign right in the middle of the painting why do you like having dogs in the work and what do they stand in for in your work What, what what are they a reference to I'm just a big dog fan. They could stand in for anything, I guess, really. I mean, people. Yeah, I, growing up with dogs, I guess, is just, you know, something that's coming into the paintings. I mean, I'm here in the studio with my two pups, Chewie and Bubba. Yeah, I think, like, there's there's several sort of, like, ideas that happen with, like, you know, using dog language in, in the work. I think, like, some of the earliest was, like, a few sayings in Spanish that my grandma used to tell me. That sort of like had dogs as stand-ins for um, for people, and you know, there's nothing like too complex or like heady about using the dogs in my work, rather than just like it just being a part of like I think my general life. There's a long history of dogs in Western painting. You know what? I'll tell you this. One of the more like fascinating like museum moments I had was like being at the Louvre and seeing, I guess, and it's a shame that I can't remember uh, the title of the painting or the painter but it was the first dog painting and it was in the same room as the Mona Lisa yeah and I thought it was like fascinating it was like wow I mean just the lineage of just like dog paintings well the greatest dog painting in America is probably right up the street from you the Aldrovandi dog by Guercino at at the Norton Simon or my favorite dog painting might actually be the one in Goodfellas Um, that's more (laughs) Yeah, it's not an, it's not a, you know, it's, I mean, you know, there are dogs and Matisse's and dogs and Bernard's. I mean, it's a, it's not specific to Renaissance painting. It's not specific to, you know, American modernism. It's, it's just there, comma, a lot. <laughs> you know what? I mean, I think like, yeah, you know, just a big uh, dog painting fan here. I want to close by asking if uh, a couple of painters who seem to me are likely to have informed your work have indeed informed your work. 
And I want to start with Diego Rivera. You went to school at the San Francisco Art Institute. There's a famous Rivera mural at SFAI. And of course, San Francisco is is chock full of Diego Rivera murals. Were they important to you? Yes and, and no. You know, it's funny about the Diego Rivera mural at SFAI is the sort of, uh, I guess, that space is used as like an exhibition space for undergrads. And every time it was used for, uh, you know, some artist or artist's show, you always had this Diego Rivera mural in the space. And I remember that always being like a complaint because it was like, it was always sort of regarded as part of the exhibition, really. There's also a central dude in the middle of the mural that just kind of looks down on you with an arched eyebrow. So it's very present. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the most present. Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, not that that was sort of uh, a reason for me, like disliking the mural. I think, you know, there was a strange, which I'm sure some people feel the same, like moment in school where you sort of disassociate yourself with maybe some like things that you sort of felt like you knew since you were in the space to learn. And I think I became more interested in Diego's work after school after spending the time there not sort of like engaging so much with that mural but but yes and no short answer i suppose i mean there is something in rivera's work including in that mural that's very much in yours and that is your your compositions usually aren't architected to direct the eye to a single place there is an equality of every part of the canvas which is something that absolutely happens in rivera murals i mean every little section of a Rivera mural has its own, or really any mural by any Mexican modernist, you know, has a, has an equality of space across the entire surface. And I think, I think your work does that. Funny enough, since my time there in school, I, you know, didn't necessarily do such a heavy investigation over Diego's work, but it wasn't until after school where I was sort of introduced to the, the mural Diego did in Detroit where that sort of sort of decision making of painting all the sort of uh, sort of fabrication process of metal vehicles sort of I think like aligned with my interest in just how I was sort of like experiencing like mural paintings here in LA, but also in the Bay Area too, that weren't necessarily like artists like Diego, but more maybe commercial painters or sort of just painters attempting to like make an image on a business wall. Where then I think my interest in the mural back at SFAI sort of, yeah, I sort of just like had a a different association with it afterwards. The other, the, the next artist I wanted to ask if he is important to you is Larry Pittman. Extremely important. Larry and a few other artists I could think of, I think like they... They've been able to like pioneer some path, if you will, that I think I sort of engage with like narratively in painting. So yeah, absolutely. There's some passages in some of your paintings that seem to nod at Pittman's paintings. Your 2020 painting, I'm Your Puppet at the Hammer, which features uh, seven circular forms at the bottom of the painting. Like that's a very that's a very Pittman move, a, a, a serial shape, a shape, a dominant shape presented serially at the bottom or top of a painting is a super Pittman move. <laughs> yeah, they're the the reflectors with uh, like Aries symbol caps. 
Yeah, in your painting. Yeah, in your painting. And in Pittman's, they they can be flowers, for example. We, you know, and so there's there, there's a rhyme there. Yeah, I mean, I've never I've never spoken to Larry, but you know, even even at you know in his paintings, there are like these I think sort of similar like scrolls or line work that even is sort of similar in the sort of like sort of painting that happens like on a car with uh, pinstriping, you know. Yeah, I think that there might be some things that like we both have in common in terms of like painting, you know. Well, one of one of them for me is that in Pittman paintings, it seems like the viewer should be able to find evidence of Pittman's hand on the canvas. And in a painting, I think Angel's Fruits is a good example. It, it seems like we should be able to find evidence of your hand on the canvas because there seems to be such specificity and detail. But in Pittman's paintings, nope. And in your paintings, nope. We can't. We can look and look, and we're not going to find any evidence of the hand having been there. <laughs> what do you mean by the hand exactly? Well, you know, uh, whether it's a brush stroke or, or or mark making on a surface. So you know, when when a mark is typically when a painter makes a mark on a surface, there's some indentation in the ground you 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 can tell that a hand pushed something you know a pencil or you know a razor blade or whatever or tape across the canvas um, and you'll never find that moment in a Pittman painting you'll find them in mine <laughs> ah, you think <laughs> yeah I don't think by painting I think you know but maybe it's also something where it's you know obviously more difficult to see in a in a photograph but yeah, I think as precise as I can be, I think, you know, there are there is evidence that it was man man made in some way. Going back to Aqueduct Angel though, actually, that was sort of one of the first paintings I had made in a while where I actually used a brush. And actually the whole background Oh well that I think you can see, yeah. I don't know if it's yeah, if it's uh sort of readable through a photograph, but Yeah, I should for for listeners, we are taping the as we are taping this, the Made in LA shows have been installed at the Hammer, but they are not open because of because of the pandemic. Makes for an interesting media world. <laughs> Last artist I want to ask about, and this is probably my biggest stab in the dark. Are you at all interested in James Rosenquist? Uh, yes. What in, what in Rosenquist has interested you? I mean, a lot of things, I guess. You know, even just in terms of advertisement, you know, or I think the seduction sort of quality of like uh, how maybe certain things are painted which you know i'm sort of relating to like a type of advertisement interests me a lot in in my own work there's there's a density in rosenquist that i think is in your work too yeah i think there's also just like a a, we have a a similar sort of like i think sort of interest in like like a bag of like sort of um, lexicons of images that we sort of like to use throughout the paintings and yeah there's like a yeah, there's, I think, like, also compositionally, maybe even just, like, some similarities. But, you know, I've been thinking about Rosenquist quite a bit lately, actually. It's funny that you brought him up. Your Sunset Haircut 2017 is pretty Rosenquisty. that comb. Yeah. And kind of kind of the way the comb holds the whole painting together is kind of reminiscent about how, reminiscent of how something in the background of a Rosenquist painting holds the whole thing together. Yeah, that one, yeah, that one in particular... Funny because I wasn't necessarily thinking of Rosenquist making that. I was literally just thinking of this barbershop sort of like painting. But uh, yeah, I see what you're saying with like the, you know, even just the sort of like uh, more like illusionistic masking that happens in Rosenquist's paintings. 
And yeah, I think it kind of happened there a little bit. The subconscious is very powerful, especially to uh, painters and writers and, and, and people who invent. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, yeah, I agree. Mario Ayala, thanks so much. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.